0: From the dark web to your radio dial, you are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 W-O-A-I.
1: Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt a 20 year internet security veteran this week we're talking veteran entrepreneurship and the value of human capital i'm joined by two members of the spectrum information security team who have a bunch of knowledge in this area thank you uh michael and matt for joining us this week and uh, i want to go ahead and give you each an opportunity to share a little bit about your background and how you ended up here on the radio
2: yeah absolutely so i'll go first uh thanks a lot brett for having me on uh it's great to be here um So, I discovered CyberTalk Radio through the San Antonio Chamber of Commerce uh, Cybersecurity Council meeting, Uh, that's where I met you, Um, and uh, through that we were trying to uh, find out new ways to expand our brand, expand our our presence here in San Antonio with uh, Spectrum Information Security. This is a small cybersecurity firm that uh, Matthew and I started uh, after he and I transitioned out of the military, and uh, uh, that's how we ended up here, and uh, my background is I served for about six years in the Marine Corps as an intel analyst. Uh, after that, I did defense contracting for about three years because I thought that was the thing to do. Um, and then after that, I, I left that world to start this business with Matthew. And uh, ever since then, it's been an, a wild ride actually doing this. It's, it's a lot of learning. It's a lot of uh, self-introspection. And it's been, it's been great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Startups are a load of fun. They're definitely a challenge. But uh, meeting that challenge is always something new every single day. And um, that, that just tends to be an awesome opportunity to have. My personal background, I'm uh, Air Force, and uh, so I've done that for a number of years. I uh, became a SANS instructor, so I teach uh, different types of information security, generally penetration testing. I also teach uh, with the University of uh, Texas at San Antonio occasionally, Uh, generally Army reservists going through uh, upgrade training and uh, trying to figure out exactly how they can do network operations, particularly before uh, they deploy out to the field and need to do it real world.
1: And uh, judging from the uniform that you have on today, you're still in the reserves, or you just really enjoy wearing that?
0: Really enjoy wearing that. I'm actually in the process of transitioning right now. I'm in my
1: last uh, couple of months. Okay, so you're still you're still active duty today. That's absolutely right. Okay. So uh, as you guys are, are getting your, your business up and going, um, you're gonna look to help train and close this job gap that we have out here in the, the market, because uh, I know we've had Congressman Hurd on, we've had a number of folks on talking about the hundreds of thousands, potentially a million or more cybersecurity jobs that would be available out there or would get posted if they aren't already posted, um, if there were people to fill them. That's right, and that's not just here in San Antonio, that's also up in Austin and a bunch of other areas as well.
2: Um, yeah, filling that gap is, is really hard. Uh, you had Nigel on recently who talked a lot about that, and uh, some of those challenges are the certifications that transfer between the enlisted side, and not just the enlisted side, but the, the uniform side as well as the private sector side, and there's this new buzzword going around called new collar jobs rather than white or blue or whatever. New collar jobs is this term being thrown around to articulate that that need and that uh, those spaces open for these types of jobs that uh, people who have the requirements, people who have the the knowledge, the skills, the abilities to be able to fill these positions, but maybe not necessarily the classically trained certifications or degrees that some of these jobs require, but they're still able to fill these jobs. And so it's it what we need to find is a compromise between, the uniform side um, uh, supporting the service members to go out and find these certifications, as well as the private sector side realizing that these exp- the experience that some of these guys gain in uniform is translatable and can transfer with or without the specific certification. So, yeah, filling that
1: gap is a challenge. Yeah. So on the, the training piece there, um, that's a one. So uh, one of the things we had in the topic for this week shows veteran entrepreneurship. So. Um, going from a, a very uh, prescriptive, well-defined world with well-defined policies, whether you really like them or think they're all updated or not, you can maybe not comment on that. Uh, but there, it's a very well-defined world. Where in startup land, it's very ambiguous. Um, it's a, a mission where you you have a state, uh, a target, a goal, uh, but not a lot of mission planning. Or if the mission planning is like you're going to go take this hill, but not really sure what's on the hill or who's going to be there or any of the rest of it you don't have much forward intel uh, no that's right yeah in the startup world so
2: coming from the intel world uh, especially in the marine corps um, there's i I like to i like to be comforted by data and structure but being in the marine corps i'm also used to just chaos and being flexible and being semper gumby Um, and so entering the uh, startup world the entrepreneurship world uh, i like things I'm i'm the kind of guy i'm the personality who when I play like Rollercoaster Tycoon or some sort of video game, I like things to be in straight orderly lines and I like things to be like covered in a line and a grid and it's great. I like it. Uh, but the startup and entrepreneurial world is not like that at all. Um, there's, it's, it's all kinds of messy. You might set a plan forth, but of course the, the plan never goes quite as you wanted it to or expected it to. And so it's, li- it's learning to live in that world and learning to be flexible, learning to, to deal with the things that come at you as they come at you is definitely part of the challenge. There's a lot of support here, uh, support network here in San Antonio as well as Austin that uh, allows us to learn how to deal with those types of things, which I'd love to talk about a little bit later.
0: While well, uh, it it can be a little bit challenging to not have a, a prescriptive job, you know, nine to five, you show up, and here's the thing you're going to do. We're working on one goal. It's a long-term stretch goal, and we're going to do it every day until we get there. You know, the difference between working on that versus startup is something has to happen every single day. You have to accomplish something. You have to constantly be accomplishing. That's a pretty nice world to live in it allows us to specialize um, to a significant degree. It even helps us when it comes to uh, working with different service members who've maybe been uh, put in situations where they're doing the same kind of job day in and day out and they're ready to do something more specific or more, uh, more interesting, if you will, on a, on a, you know, a nuanced basis. It helps us bring them on the team and they've got now something else to bring to the table. Uh, They can use their experience to help out with, but now they're actually uh, able to use their, uh, shall we say mental capacity, to the next degree because they're required to make those uh, decisions on the spot and rapidly.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, one that um, I find in in startup world, uh, the job description is useful to uh, understand the starting point and the, the basics. Uh, but if you only allow people in the startup world to do what's specifically in their job description, that startup's going to fail. Um, everyone's got to be able to take on a little bit of a stretch role and utilize skills that they may bring in from other areas of their life. Um, and I'll uh, give a call out to somebody we don't talk about much on the radio here, but our uh, producer, uh, James, is a Disk employee, does uh, data security, helps people with their backups and all of the problems on small business security networks in the daytime, but in his past life, uh, he's got a ton of experience uh, in music and audio production, which uh, enabled him to be our producer here for CyberTalk Radio. Uh, So when we initially started talking to WAI about doing the radio program, we had a team that already sort of knew how to do this, and I didn't have to go try to figure out and solve that problem. I didn't go hire just a radio producer, who's their only thing to do is going to be radio production. Uh, he squeezes this in during the the rest of uh, his juggling act as a, one of us on a, a team of uh, 25 in startup world.
2: So us at Spectrum Information Security, we're now in our second year of business, um, and it's it's a lot of fun. We're, we're learning a lot, and one of the things we've learned, especially about bringing new people onto the team, is. For me, one of the most important things I look for is ambition. I want to know that the people I bring on can fill maybe a specific role or can do certain specific skills or that sort of thing. But um, the ambition, the drive to go forward, to do above and beyond, to bring that value to us as a team, and as a company, because at this, at this level, it still matters,
1: um, is really important. So as you guys head into you know, year two here, did you set out like year-end goals? Uh, like, do you know where you're going to be at the end of this year if you accomplish a plan, or do you take it a day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time? Still,
2: yeah. Um, I, uh, initially, we we had uh, lofty goals uh, that we wanted to do, sort of intangible goals we wanted to achieve. Um, now we're, as as we've learned and as we've grown, um, we have more tangible financial goals, recruiting goals, uh, project goals, that sort of thing um, that we're we're now enacting. The uh, so in the, in the short term, what we provide are cybersecurity services. Um, if you're a business owner or a business leader, for example, who understands the need and appreciates the need for cybersecurity, but maybe doesn't know what to do about it or understand it uh, entirely, um, what we offer are services to come in and to give you the tools to understand and, and manage and have a tangible measurement of cybersecurity for your business. That's what we do. That's what we, what's what we currently focused on. But the long-term goals for our business are services isn't everything. Uh, we want to start doing products, and so we're currently writing some white papers about some products that we want to start offering in 2018. Those are the longer-term goals, and so whereas we started out with, hey, starting a company sounds like fun. Let's bring our friends together and let's do this. Now we have
1: definitely more more tangible goals, more things to achieve. So you, you mentioned going out and helping uh, businesses think about information security, and this is one um, where like our, our uh services uh, are i think well ahead on the policy side this is my two cents of perspective maybe sometimes on the the tech tools because army procurement and air force procurement is not what it needs to be Um, so if you're a a legislature uh, member out there listening to this please help them modernize the procurement Uh, talk to congressman hurd he's got some good ideas Uh, but they're behind on the technology side because the the policies and procedures um, and thought process around this is so far ahead that they actually end up with above what I would consider the average security level in the private sector. So uh, as we talk to some of these things out here in the private sector, so information classification, can you help um, somebody who may be listening understand what is information classification? I think this is something most businesses haven't even thought about yet. Absolutely,
0: Uh, specifically to security, one of the first things you need to understand in order to get an idea of what your cybersecurity risk is is where your critical information is, right? Not everything that you produce, not every Excel document that you create or every PowerPoint that you make is a business requirement, right? If, if one of these got leaked or, or uh, became public knowledge, your company doesn't necessarily go under for each one of them. But there are certain types of information that have an inherent level of risk associated with them. And that might be public risk or it might even be internal risk, something like uh, here's the promotion document for all of my 100 employees. And if everyone sees, what each other is getting paid that might cause some divisiveness internally organization. So you might have uh, different kinds of threat actors who are interested in getting access to that information. It might just be uh, the, one of your employees who's interested in seeing the information and letting everybody know the truth behind the, uh, behind the, uh, the curtain, as it, as it were. But in other cases, it might actually be malicious threat actors, oftentimes Russian cyber criminals or uh, other organizations that have a malicious intent, a nefarious intent, targeting your organization specifically, they're not just after compromise, they're after effects generation, as we like to call it. And in many cases, that is gaining access to and then retrieving secure or or destroying secure information that you're required to have in order to be able to do your business case. Something we're seeing a lot of these days is ransomware, where an intrusion set goes in and they attack your network, they gain access to your critical information, they even profile your organization to identify what information it is that you need to be able to keep running on a day-to-day basis, and they encrypt that and they extort you for money in order to get access back to your data.
1: Yeah, They do the information classification for you and they'll let you know what your important files are and then they'll ask you to pay for them to have them back.
0: Absolutely. And that's the worst way to find out what you need to uh, keep tabs on. Yes. Now you brought up
1: policy keeping
2: up with our
0: industry and there's actually
2: something uh, very important that I wanted to bring up here today on the show and that was uh, if you are a veteran, let's say you're a reservist specifically because this is an actual uh, case that's going on right now. Um, let's say you're a reservist and so you do the weekend warrior thing and, and while you're not in uniform doing that uh, you want to start a business uh, and you start a business and you go through the small business administration and you want to classify yourself as a veteran-owned small business right you you are a veteran you are in uniform because you're a reservist or you're active duty or whatever um, and you deserve that because you've worked for it and you've earned it um, unfortunately until you're actually eased which is uh, end of active service until you're actually out of the military you don't qualify for a veteran-owned small business. So a reservist, for example, who does the Weekend Warrior things and starts a business can't classify their business as a veteran-owned business and get all of the, the, uh, 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 the benefits from that until they're actually out of service. And so uh, I, uh, while we were at South by Southwest recently, um, which is a, a conference that goes up, uh, three-week conference goes up in, in Austin, uh, while we were up there, we met with a number of uh, congressmen as well as some um, influential business leaders who were I, uh, we identified this problem to them and hopefully we can get some progress on that. We can get some visibility on that uh, because that that would be a big helpful thing for a lot of uh, veterans and and currently actively yeah. serving in reserves and things.
1: well and and yeah, so that's a, a good one. I'm gonna stick on that for a second here is that actually in encourages behavior that the the Air Force, the Army, the Navy doesn't they, they want folks to stay in the reserves that's they right. want that continuity between the private sector and the service um, so that you have that flow of information, you have the flow of policy, you have the flow of knowledge, mm-hmm. um, you have those skills that are available um, at that the reserves provide and serve to our armed forces, and you're encouraging folks to end their reserve service mm-hmm. in order to be able to be successful in the private sector. So. Um, yeah, this is the one we'll definitely call out in the episode recap in the blog and we will uh, this is uh, one to go uh, push and promote to yeah, how do we get it? Is this? Do you know if it's uh, policy-based inside the services, or is this a small business administration thing that would need to be sent through Congress to get modified at the law level?
2: So what you said in the latter part there is what I believe it is. I don't know for sure. I don't know where the actual verbiage comes from. I don't know who originally wrote it this way. Um, but the way it is written, the small business administration is enforcing it as that way. That's the way either okay. it's been interpreted or it simply is. And so. Where that change needs to occur, I'm not sure. I imagine um, a policymaker or a legislator would probably know better than I. Okay. Uh, but it certainly is a problem that I'd like to show more uh, yeah. more light on. So
1: if you're you're listening out there, and want to do a little research and tweet back to uh, Cyber Talk Radio, let us know, um, and uh, if we may do some research on our own, get it up into the episode recap as well. But yeah, this is the important kind of thing to to go uh, through and cover. And uh, if you listen to one of the, the previous episodes we had on the uh, the Air Force recruiter for uh, cyber. Um, and uh, she's in the mission of trying to get folks to potentially even just come in and directly join the reserves, not even serve a tour of, of a full active duty tour to begin with. And it, it this is, sounds very counterproductive to I think the overall goals that if you get up to Air Force or other uh, service leadership, uh, they're trying to encourage reserve participation rather than um, set up incentive systems that discourage it. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys, it sounds like, are, are in the midst of going through that right now yourselves. Kind of. Um,
2: so I'm out of the service now. I'm out of uniform. Um, and, and out so, of the reserves?
1: That's right, did, yeah. Did you, did you drop out specifically because of this or mm-hmm. did you already had kind of gone that route? No,
2: after, after my six years of serving, I decided to get out. Um, and then it was a few years after that that I decided to start the business. So we luckily avoided that problem because as somebody who has gotten out, I can claim to be a veteran per the way the, the verb is written, so we, we avoided that, but um, we are also a member of Bunker Labs, uh, which is a, a veteran, um, I guess advocacy group might be a good way to, to call them. They're a support network and organization uh, here in San Antonio and Austin and, and elsewhere um, to help veterans who want to be entrepreneurs, or entrepreneurs and start businesses. Um, and so in, in membership of this group, I've come across other veterans and other uh, reservists, for example, who have started businesses and are very excited and very passionate about what they do. But you're right. They come across this problem where they now want to reap the benefits of their service as they rightly should, but can't. And so now they have to decide, well, do I get out and, and you know continue my business or do I stay in? You know, what, what's the right decision? So, yeah, it's very hard for many people.
1: Uh, if someone wanted to learn more about Bunker Labs, uh, where would they go and uh, who would they get a hold of? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So if someone wanted to learn more about Bunker Labs and either specifically about the, the push to change some of the legislation for the uh, Small Business Administration, for the whole reservist thing, or just Bunker Labs in general, because they're a great organization that helps veterans start new businesses. Um, The best way to do it in this local area would be to look at Bunker Labs uh, Austin on Google, naturally. Um, What you're looking for is Jonathan and Sabrina. They're the husband and wife team who run the Bunker Labs organization here in Austin. And they're also starting a new community here in San Antonio uh, in the Geekdom building, as a matter of fact. Um, so, yeah, if anybody's interested in that, uh, I'm more than happy to plug them. They, they do great stuff. They've helped us quite a bit, and they're constantly doing new things. Uh, in fact, Christina just a moment ago talked about their uh, Bunker Brews events that they do, and this is a great networking opportunity for veterans, for cybersecurity uh, industry folks, or really anybody who touches any of those uh, groups in general to come
0: network and meet new people and just have great conversations. So more than happy to, to give them some airtime. And, and to further that point, uh, specifically with Bunker Labs and uh, transitioning veterans, for veterans, one of the hardest things we tend to have when moving into the private sector is the connections, right? In the military, we all tend to know each other. It's a small community. Uh, you go from one assignment to another assignment and you see three people that you had the uh, the, the previous location uh, right next door in there. And that community is fantastic, but when we transition out, that st- does also exist in the private sector information security community, but it's not something that we're able to bring with us. And Bunker Labs is an absolutely outstanding mechanism to make those connections, meet people, and, uh, and branch out. And we're, we're truly grateful for all the help they've done for us.
2: Yeah, and i got to be honest. Uh, so starting a new company is, is a lot of fun. As we said, it's a wild ride. Um, but, but frankly, if anybody out there, especially a veteran who's getting out, um, and transitioning and looking to maybe start a new business, um, I have to say starting a business is one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Um, and the reason is because of a short story I'd like to tell. Um, so recently we signed in a new contract with a new client to do curriculum development, do some new work. Um, at the same time, I have a Marine who's currently transitioning out of uniform into the private sector. Now, if you're, if you're a service member transitioning out of uniform, um, it's, it can be a really hard time. It can be a hard time because especially if you have a family with kids, you feel compelled and pressured to get a job right away. You feel you need to start making money right away, and you need to make that transition immediately to you do support your family. Um, and that's really hard to do, right? That's like choosing what you want to do for the rest of your life immediately, and it's, it's difficult. Um, so starting this business that Matthew and I did, we built this vehicle that allowed me to reach out to this Marine that I knew and say, hey, you know what? You have skills that I can use, and I just signed this contract, this, this client, whose skills you know, also can, can be used by you. So let me take you, let me hire you on for a short term or maybe even a long term if it turns out to be great. Um, And this gave this Marine a chance to say, you know what, awesome. I don't have to choose what I want to do right away. I can come work for you. I can have a little bit of padding. I can decide whether I want to go uh, uh, pursue my degree or get a new job or whatever it is. And so being able to give that opportunity to uh, provide that opportunity for this Marine as well as other people, too, Uh, It's just one of the most rewarding things ever, and it's something that I want to do over and over again. And that's really what fuels me to continue doing this entrepreneurial thing. And I encourage anybody out there who wants to try this to absolutely do it.
1: Yeah. And uh, for for those folks on your way out, when you're in the private sector, uh, you can actually change jobs at will. Uh, (laughs) So it's no longer you've accepted a two year or a four year assignment where if you decide to quit, they actually throw you in jail. Uh, they call it AWOL. Uh, <laughs> that's not good. But out here, you can you can generally give your notice and change things. So as you, uh, I love that you're making that bridge for folks where they can come in, they can work for you for three months, six months, nine months, sure. 18 months, whatever it is. But even if at some point during there they go, you know what, uh, Michael, I've found this thing I want to do. It's going to be amazing. Even if you're on a contract, most contracts in the private sector, you can walk away from mid-contract if you need to as an employee on it. That's right, yeah. And it's, it's just again, it's just providing that opportunity for folks to come in and
2: to network, like Matthew said, to get some of the ground under their feet and to to give back to that sort of transitioning veteran cyber nerd community from which we come from. It's just it's really rewarding and really
1: great. So uh, circling back uh, on the procurement uh, topic here for a minute, I was looking over at uh, James, our producer's uh, laptop, and we're uh, off the air. We were talking for a little while about. How, like everybody at Jungle Disk, they get an equipment budget, they get to go out and buy whatever they want within reason, so they've got the tools that they need to do their job properly. Uh, how does that kind of compare and contrast with procurement?
0: So, we've been doing a lot of work with procurement in the Air Force recently, specifically as a race to cybersecurity. When you're, when you're trying to buy an airplane, right, get a uh, F 22 design and created and built, and then off the shelf, and you buy it, and now you have to pilot it, in and you start flying the thing around, that's a long term process. That takes, that takes decades. But in cybersecurity, we don't have the luxury of being able to wait a decade for the next tool to come along. But our procurement process tends to be mired in that kind of bureaucratic nightmare. As a result, we've been working on a lot of different programs in the Air Force to to shorten the time between discovery and and, uh, development of a tool by, say, some business, and actual Air Force fielding of it in mission. One of the difficulties we have specifically with cybersecurity is that to sell to the military often need to be a large organization and have a big background in government contracting and and development and all of that. But in cybersecurity, many of the most influential and the most uh, uh, impactful tools, we call them disruptive technologies in the Air Force, they tend to come from smaller businesses. And I'm not saying that necessarily because we're a small business here at Spectrum, uh, but because many of the businesses out there, they've got some kind of key idea and that, that, Value proposition is something they're able to bring whenever they are, uh, are developing product and, and servicing a customer. But oftentimes, they're one to 10 people large, and they've got something that could really make a difference for us, but because they don't have that, that back end, we're not necessarily able to purchase from them. And this is, this is very much hamstrung, the Air Force's ability to do operations. So they're attempting to shorten that life cycle down very rapidly, and also to get involved in the actual development chain of different capabilities as they start to get developed by entrepreneurial ventures and uh, different companies who are starting out pretty low level. To that effect, however, one of the troubles the Air Force will continue to have is being able to make those connections. Because again, where in the military, we, we know each other, and we know very much uh, the different vehicles uh, for, for contracting. When it comes to making that contact and the communication with highly technical, highly uh, uh, capable, engineers in the private sector, those just aren't relationships that we have. And so building those is going to be one of the bigger
1: challenges the Air Force needs to solve in the future. And the, the uh, military understands the power of specialization and specialists with, with special knowledge. We're going to talk more about human capital and some of that special knowledge in the cyber realm uh, after the break. If you missed a, a portion of this, uh, you just uh, turned us on your radio dial now. Uh, you can hear the rebroadcast and replay of this uh, on Tuesday. Uh, you can visit our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, podcasts, uh, Pocket Cast on your Android device or on YouTube as well. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by Michael Pleasant and Matt Toussaint of Spectrum Information Security. Uh, Before the break, we discussed veteran entrepreneurship, uh, talked a little bit about Bunker Labs. Uh, Check that out on Google or Bing or your favorite DuckDuckGo search search engine, depending on uh, who you trust to share your search uh, queries with. And uh, you missed the first half of this episode. or If you wanted to hear any of the past episodes, uh, you can find those on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on iTunes, uh, Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or YouTube. This segment, we're going to talk about human capital and uh, what that uh, tools and cybersecurity and uh, how the Air Force really goes through and and thinks about some of these different things. So uh, I'm going to not talk very much and turn most of this over to uh, one of the experts that's joined us this week.
0: Absolutely, and I'm uh, I'm happy to discuss uh, this topic. It's one that really resonates with me because I think it's centric to many of the issues and troubles, difficulties if you will, that we have in the information security community, be it the public or the private sector. In spectrum, one of the most common clients we have is uh, is we get a call and something went wrong. But generally speaking, the client, the customer, they're not sure what it is they need in information security. They know they need something. Sometimes they may have already been compromised and they need help handling that incident. But in many cases, they're just attempting to make the first steps to explore and understand what their cybersecurity risk is. Oftentimes, unfortunately, they've been bombarded with advertisements in uh, any airport on Here's the proper internet uh, email filter to use for uh, protecting your email base, or here's a big data system that you need to buy in order to get secure. What about your threat intel? Are you thinking about threat intel? And they get bombarded with these different appliances that are being sold to them. Now, it's not to say that there's no value in these systems, but there's no one trying to sell you an employee. And that's not necessarily because, I mean, it's not really business, right? Who makes money off of selling you employees? In some, in some sectors that does exist, specifically in, uh, in the investment community, they'll sell you people who, uh, they'll sell different organizations, uh, investment bankers, and those kind of things for that connection, right? But in the cybersecurity community, we lack that. And what this kind of engenders is we see a lot of price stickers on appliances, and we think, well, that's what it costs, so that must be what it's worth to me, and that's a mistake. What we're doing there is we're failing to see what the actual human capital is that will provide that solution. Many times, the appliance is perfectly valid and has a place in your information security infrastructure. But if you don't have an operator who's capable of using it and understands exactly why you need to buy that system in the first place, you're not really getting much value out of it. I've seen many clients, specifically in the big data and uh, uh, threat intelligence community or uh, sector, make purchases of those types of appliances and not really understand what it is they're getting from it. They're then perusing through lots of information, but there's not a lot of vector associated. I like to liken this to a case with the the Cincinnati School District. We all know that that's uh, not necessarily had the cleanest marks or the best scoring students in the country, uh, but there were some programs done to kind of re-enliven, reinvigorate the students. And these are our K through 12 students. And one of those was, let's just throw money at the problem. We see this all the time in the information security community. There's a lot of things that people are trying to sell me. Let's throw money at the problem and see if we get better, because we're desperate to do better. And so in the, school, in the school district, they did exactly that. They bought all kinds of different analytic systems that would track students as they went through uh, many years of, of education programs. And then uh, each teacher was required to build a plan, a get well plan for each one of the students, in order to see how to uh, provide them a better future. But what ended up happening is that the instructors were inundated with way too much data, and they were unable to use any of that to make a meaningful impact on the students' lives. It wasn't until they took the systems out, when funding was pulled, when they removed the systems, that instructors were able to use just a couple onesie twosies in order to identify where the real impact was. So you had maybe one or two instructors in the entire school district using maybe a system in an interesting way, just kind of a technique, nothing special, and their students started to do better. It's then taking all of those different ideas and putting them together that provides you with an optimal solution. This did help out their school district to a significant degree. Likewise, in the information security community, we have a lot of appliances that, that may provide value to your organization. But just looking to get as much data as possible, that's not going to get you a better security strategy. So some of the clients we see that do best are those who first reach out and attempt to either hire on new employees or hire on say a third party vendor to come in and give them a little bit of a risk assessment of their environment, maybe provide some consultation services to let them know, hey, these are the different appliances that you might need in order to most adequately counter your specific organizational risk. Uh, specifically, in, uh, in one case that we've had, uh, it, was, it was a customer um, and they, they didn't really have a information security team yet. Many, many uh, organizations, especially uh, mid cap level, Uh, they tend to be in this scenario where they've got, oh, we've got an IT team. Uh, We just had to hire a couple more guys on in order to keep the network running, but security is a cost sink. And so we haven't really put any focus into that, but suddenly we've started to identify, oh man, if what happened to uh, to my friend's company, the CFO over there, happens to us, we're in a lot of trouble. So let's start to explore what that risk is. In that case, though, they now have to start making decisions. What's the first thing that they do and who's the first person they turn to? likely the CTO or maybe the head of their IT department. IT and, and security are fundamentally different. Uh, security operations is very very focused on organizational risk, whereas IT is all about the availability. It's all about providing you that network um, uh, access and, uh, and providing you the services you need to get the job done. Yeah,
1: yeah, CIOs are uh, championed to reduce operational expense, to roll out technology tools, to simplify businesses' process, to speed up the, the business, nowhere on the CIO's goals for most organizations out there is slow down and make sure everything is safe. Absolutely. They go, let's hire a chief information security officer. And then you eventually you're basically pitting the two of them against each other because one person has a a bonus target of ship new apps, reduce operational expense, reduce burden, um, make employees more productive and allow things to go faster. And the CISO is standing there with a, a big red light or a stop sign or uh, uh, boot to put on people's uh, cars so that they'd slow down. Absolutely.
0: An unfortunate side effect of that that I've seen in many organizations is the CISO is organizationally and structurally underneath the CIO from a reporting perspective. And so the organization may, and this isn't always true, but sometimes they look to hire a CISO to make the problem disappear. And if they get hacked, as in, say, uh, the Sony case, an example, that's who you fire, right? That's yeah. your scapegoat. It's not necessarily trying to actually assess, understand, and mitigate the cybersecurity risk. It's putting a bandage over the problem so that when something goes bad, you now have a procedure to deal with that cognitive operations. Yeah. This could be malicious, uh, or it could just be the cost of doing business. In any case, many of these organizations are handling a problem that they're not quite equipped to handle. And in some cases, the decisions that they make, the business decisions that they make, might make monetary sense, but could be very, very um, inconsiderate of the users that are relying on them. In the case of, uh, take take General Motors, this isn't a security example. If they knew that they were releasing a automobile on the market that was not able to adequately uh, detect when a, when a driver was in the passenger seat and deploy the airbag, that could kill somebody, right? They've got a responsibility to, when they've identified that kind of thing happening, to take care of it, to fix it, to protect the users who are uh, putting their trust in them. In many cases, in uh, an information security perspective, we're starting to see this finally, uh, the light's finally starting to come on in the eyes of many C-level individuals, where they're, they're saying, hey, uh, we've seen a lot of things go bad. It was bad for many organizations and could have gone some of them uh, out of business. But in other cases, it's not just about that. It's also about protecting our users and uh, doing the right thing. And so it's great to see that. The unfortunate side effect of that, though, is Now they're willing to spend the money, but they're not sure exactly where to spend it, where to put it.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, often is uh, tools. Like if you talked about the F-22 a little bit earlier in the program, Uh, if you gave me an F-22 and said, go make sure that the airspace above San Antonio is safe, I can't get it off the runway. So uh, without hiring a pilot that has training on how to fly an F-22 and use it, it's useless. Um, It's really expensive and useless. Uh, in the hands of the right person, though, that F-22, you might have one plane that could guarantee air superiority over the size of a city like San Antonio.
0: Absolutely, and that, that, comes, even, uh, that comes even to a further degree. Is it better to spend money on hiring an, uh, an individual or employee, or even third-party support, who are really uh, tech, tech-savvy and have a lot of ability that they can bring to the table, but they're maybe flying around in, say, uh, a P-38? Yeah. Or is it better to buy the F-22 and leave it sitting on the tarmac? Yeah. And that's a decision that a lot of uh, a lot of vendors, or excuse me, a lot of our clients are tr- are having to make, and they're not making the wrong decision on purpose. But oftentimes they're putting the trust in their IT department, saying, "Okay, you guys, yeah. you're now tasked with security. Here's a bunch of things that I'm supposed to buy for that. So here you go. Uh, spent yeah. spent three hundred thousand dollars. You guys are good to go, right? But their job isn't necessarily security. That's not what they've been trained to do. So yeah. You're kind of putting a, uh, you know, a boat driver in a pilot seat. And, yeah, if you, uh, if
1: you put me in an F-22, and you put any one of our highly qualified uh, Air Force pilots here in San Antonio in an F-4 or a, a trainer, even if you mounted one gun to a trainer, they're going to win that aerial dogfight. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, because it's not going to be an aerial dogfight. They're going to fly over the runway and shoot me while I'm sitting there because <laughs> I'm not going to turn the thing on. Uh, yeah. So this is you're, you're much better off with a talented person and less tools, less tooling, than you are uh, with more tooling and n- no qualified personnel to operate it.
0: Absolutely. Now, the other side of that, of course, is how do you know that the person is actually talented, especially if you're, a, uh, you're, you're the IT department lead and you've been put in, in charge of building, creating this information security program, and now you have to make some hires. But how do you know that the person you're hiring actually has the skills that they're going to bring to the table that are going to uh, satisfy your organizational risk? Oftentimes, the best way to do this might be to hire an outside uh, a penetration test or information security service so that you get a professional's understanding of what your risk is, and then you start asking people in your interviews information regarding that specifically. You might have, uh, as a result of your, your penetration test, a get-well plan. It might be a, for all of our clients. We provide them with a two-week, three-month, and six-month, here's what your roadmap should be in order to fix a lot of vulnerabilities, a lot of security issues that we've discovered while doing an assessment on your environment you might be able to then hire people based on that information. You know, the information you get is, oh, well, we don't have any situational awareness on the web traffic that our users are transmitting. We don't know where they're going, and we don't know what it is that they're pulling back. That puts some kind of inherent risk on the network. Uh, the penetration testers are able to get access to our systems that way. Let's now, when we hire, ask somebody, hey, do you know anything about web, uh, web traffic, web exploitation, uh, they mentioned something about a proxy. Do you know anything about operating one of those from a security perspective? And if they give positive answers, confident answers, to those kind of questions, you know you're hiring in the right direction.
1: Yeah, so you're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. We're talking through as a, a business owner, uh, and you're in there. You might have a CIO you're going through now. Uh, you may call yourself the owner. You may call yourself the CEO. Uh how do you hire your first information security professional? Uh, What are the things that you uh, should do? Uh, What are the things you should ask you? Uh, So one of the areas we talked about in the first half of the program was uh, the military credentials versus non-military credentials. So uh, you'd mentioned you you do SANS training, you teach um, some of the different SANS certification courses. Uh, it, so those are our private sector credentials. Uh, so what's some advice for folks, especially here in the San Antonio area? There's going to be an opportunity to hire many uh, former Air Force personnel um, that are going to be very highly trained, or maybe they work for the NSA or they work for the FBI. There's a number of, of government agencies here uh, that have very skilled people, uh, but they, those folks may not have that SANS certification. They may not have a Cisco certification, uh, but they may know all about Cisco equipment as well.
0: Absolutely. That's that's really one of the that's really the crux of the problem we have in identifying and hiring talent in the information security community, because these certifications, in some cases, they get the uh, the reputation of uh, a paper cert. As in, you uh, you study a couple books for a week, and then you uh, you take a test, and you walk out with a certification. That, of course, doesn't have anything to do with the actual skills and credential and value that uh, a new member of your team is able to bring to your organization. When it comes to understanding that security risk, you really want to find somebody who has got that proper organizational buy-in, if you will, but also has the chops in order to, uh, to work with your network and the different appliances that exist on your network. Do you need to have a Cisco certification in order to be able to do wonderful things with Cisco? Absolutely not. Thankfully, we've got things like Google. We've got the ability to do any, um, any uh, imaginable amount of research on your own time. Truly, the, the, most, uh, the most skilled cybersecurity professionals that I see in, in the real world today are those who didn't necessarily focus on the cert, though they might have the cert as well, but they're bringing the stuff back with them to home, and they're, they're, they're learning every single day, and they're all about continuous self-improvement. If you've kind of found somebody who, who it looks like, hey, they've, they've built their own cyber lab at home, and they like to tinker with this stuff, you've found somebody who, even if they maybe can't solve your problems today, is going to figure out how to solve them once you hire them.
1: Yeah, and th- this is one of the critical things that you talked about before the break in the procurement process, it, that cybersecurity is not something on a 10-year schedule. Cybersecurity is something that's constantly evolving because um, it is uh, good guys versus bad guys, and bad guys find a problem. Good guys have to figure out how to stop the, the new uh, way that the bad guys are exploiting a system, and this is a continual game of cat and mouse.
0: Absolutely, and it goes beyond that, too. One of the difficulties, or one of the things we see uh, community-wise is many of the compromises that eventually do get detected, they've been ongoing compromises for two to three years, perhaps even more than that, before the actual detect was, uh, was, was before they were actually detected. And that's the problem. We've got this, uh, we've got this thought process, and, and some of this is part of tool, where uh, many tools will say, hey, we're, we've got you covered. 100% of threats, 100% of attacks, we'll discover them. And what that engenders is a a measure of thinking where we tend to say, hey, if I get hacked, that's bad. I need to do something to prevent that from ever happening. And the problem with that type of thinking is any dedicated attacker will be able to gain some type of foothold, some kind of access to your environment if that's truly what they're looking for. The important thing is discovering that as quickly as possible and having a kill chain to remediate that kind of access as quickly as you possibly can, specifically because the longer they've got access, the more value they're going to take away from your organization.
1: Yeah, and this is uh, – like, you think about this on a physical security perspective and say you have an office in a high-rise office building. Uh, you're going to have people going in the lobby of that building. They're, you might have a guard that uh, is supposed to badge everybody before they get on the elevator. But somebody can generally, even if you've got secure arm guards and uh, metal detectors and all that in your high-rise – Generally, somebody can walk in the front door and sprint through that first thing. They might get tackled by the guards, they may get shot by the guards, but they're going to get through that first level of perimeter. In that physical security example, someone's going to catch them very quickly there. Now, if you don't have any guards in the lobby, maybe you've got some cameras in the lobby, and that person walks in the lobby, and they get on the elevator, and they go up to the 11th floor, and then they walk around the 11th floor for a while, and you've got security cameras, so you've collected this data. You've recorded them breaking into your facility, and they've gone in and wandered around. But if you don't have anyone looking at that physical camera footage, it could be a year, two years, three years later, you go get into a filing cabinet to pull up a file, and you're like, well, that file's not here in the filing cabinet anymore. And you go trace back three years ago on the video footage, if you kept it for that long, and you see the person came in, they went up the 11th floor, they opened the filing cabinet, took the file, and left. Um, Now it's kind of too late to do anything about it. And this happens in the, the cyber world all the time. Someone comes in, they grab something, they leave with it, and no one notices. You've got all this log information, and this data, but you don't have the people to process it. You don't have someone looking at the security camera screens uh, effectively.
0: That's absolutely right. And specifically, we tend to try to, uh, to identify what the problem was there, right? What went wrong? So th- three years later, we've been, uh, we've been owned for a long time, and the data, the data left the building. What actually went wrong there? What we might say is, oh, well, um, we didn't have, say, a man, uh, man uh, uh, trap. So he was able to walk straight into the building. We saw him, but we didn't have anything to block him. So you might say, that was the problem. But was it really? Understanding exactly what happened and the different levels at which you might have caught that intrusion, that's, uh, that access, that's truly how we get our network secure. Yes, the man trap might have helped you when it comes to him getting access into the front door. But he got into the elevator afterwards. He got into an unlocked file cabinet. He, nobody questioned him when he was walking around the building. All of those are opportunities that we as defenders have in order to catch these intrusions as they're going on. Because the adversary is not leaving uh, zero footprints. They're absolutely leaving a trail of artifacts behind them. And if we've got competent personnel who are looking for these to exist, we can catch them. Oftentimes, however, each one of these artifacts they've created is unique because each pen test is different. Each, uh, each attack is different, uh, so when an adversary goes in and they've, they've done an intrusion, they've gained access to, a, to an environment, maybe in one case they walk straight in at the front door, in the other case they, uh, the, the, the gate was open in the very back and they followed in the uh, contractors bringing in new equipment. There's so many different ways that this thing can go down. You really have to have situational awareness on them and only a person can provide that kind of uh, identification. One of the things we're, we're curious about in the information security community going forward, and this is uh, 10 to 15 years out, is will we still have a job? And I think the answer is yes, but the question there arises from a lot of the, uh, the insight we're seeing in and development we're seeing in the artificial intelligence world, specifically uh, Siri right Siri doesn't really do a huge amount for us today it certainly doesn't cyber security you can't say Siri, uh, give me cybersecurity and this is an artificial intelligence type application built by the largest company in the world right so if apple can't build something better than Siri as an assistant, an artificial intelligence assistant, don't by any means believe when a vendor, when, they're, when the vendor's sales force is telling you that they're going to catch 100% of uh, activity, don't believe that that's true because it's not. It absolutely isn't. However, in the long-term future, as, as artificial intelligence begins to evolve very rapidly, we might see that uh, the actual part of the network security operations that people are required to do personally might slowly evaporate and if that happens that might be a very good thing for us however we are very
1: far from that today yeah they're they're gonna catch all the knowns absolutely they're not gonna catch the unknowns you can have an anomaly detector but then if you have a list of knowns so many things look like an anomaly you still need to have people sorting through what we in the security world call them false positives Absolutely. Um, And if you don't have anybody looking at those, then you you tune it to where there are no false positives, then you have false negatives and people are getting through that perimeter or that interior defense or through that security control itself.
0: That's exactly right. And in the case of of real advanced threat actors who are building their own tools, they've got maybe a nation state behind them as a development arm. Perhaps they're even doing uh, vulnerability research in order to to develop zero-day capabilities to gain access to your networks. In ways that nobody knew were possible before, that's just not a battle that we can win. And so we need to look at the information uh, uh, grid holistically and identify different choke points that we can set up.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, this is as you, you get in security policy, security controls, and and. Uh these are information classification where do you keep this, the the keys to the kingdom effectively and uh this is something that many of our our private sector folks and even looks like from as you talk about nation state piece uh, some of our defense contractors uh have struggled with uh, the chinese have a, a new fighter jet that looks a lot like an f-22 uh, probably doesn't have all the same electronics on the inside i hope not anyways uh, but it sure looks exteriorly just uh, like the f-22 so Uh, there's uh, nation-state folks out there going after systems on a regular basis uh, and both on the military side but on the industrial side as well Uh, whether it's heavy equipment or uh, anything else that required billions of dollars and years of research and development it's often less expensive to steal it than it is to go back and redo that research and development work yourself
0: absolutely and uh, our nation's being bankrupted of our intellectual capital by these types of cyber intrusions these cyber attacks uh, that dedicated nation-state actors have, uh, have, have, have made themselves uh, party to. And it's, it's really quite unfortunate.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one is where we, we um, talk nicely about a lot of these things that we had uh, Congressman heard on the program. And if you missed that episode, it's on our rebroadcast and replay on Pocket Cast Podcast or YouTube. Uh, we talked about that we really don't uh, understand as a, a nation and don't have a well-defined um, dialogue going about what constitutes a cyber declaration of war. What's, what is an act that would, because uh, if, say you were a, a foreign government and you had um, hundreds of people breaking into uh, Fortune 500 company headquarter buildings all across America physically and stealing paper files out of the file cabinets, would we declare war on that country? They were paratrooping in military forces, because these, mil- these are cyber military forces that are digitally breaking into these. So they're paratrooping people in, they're stealing records, and they're exfiltrating them out of our, our soil here would you declare war on that country? We probably would, Uh, but this is happening at the cyber level and it's one where uh, I guess polite conversation doesn't wanna talk about it right now. So uh, this hopefully maybe with uh, this program here and with uh, other folks out there starting these conversations, we can get um, a policy and an agreement around what constitutes that cyber war.
0: Absolutely, Uh, part of the trouble there is, is attribution we tend to have uh, nation actors hide behind the veil of, well, it's just packets, what is that? that's, that's, not, that's not proof, right? That's not evidence. Uh, but in recent times, we've been able to prove some very significant uh, uh, cyber attribution, that's just in the private sector, let alone what the public sector has informationally about those. The question, though, is if we play our cards or force them to play theirs, what is the end fallout of that? And I think that's a question with an
1: answer no one wants to explore today. Yeah. So uh, you've been listening to CyberTalk Radio. I was joined this week by Michael Pleasant and Matthew Toussaint of Spectrum Information Security. Uh, Thank you both for uh, coming on the program. Thank you for starting a business here in San Antonio and uh, getting and growing uh, more folks into our cybersecurity community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having us on. Uh, The last thing I'd like to say is if there are any veterans out there or anybody uh, in the cybersecurity community who is interested in learning more about us, Beyond just the services that we provide, we're more than happy to help out with the networking piece for veterans. Uh, Please look us up on spectruminfosec.com. Contact us there. We're more than happy to help out, and we'd love to hear from you.